Writing Matters with Dr. Troy Hicks is a writable podcast. Find more episodes and subscribe on your favorite platforms. And if you want to learn how to grow great writers, check out writable.com. In this episode, I speak with Zaretta Hammond, who is the author of Culturally Responsive Teaching in the Brain and is a passionate educator, focusing on the word wealth and language skills that students bring to our classrooms in order to help them become better readers, writers, and communicators. Enjoy the conversation. Well, I like the the example here of the personal trainer, and that actually connects to another big theme from your work is that, you know, you're trying to get students to take the lead in their own learning. And so what what is your current thinking on that? And, and what are some of the, the challenges that are still ahead of you as you think about helping teachers help put students in that role of being the active agent of self in their own learning? Yeah, I think we've gotten really off track with the whole growth mindset, grit, uh, agency discussion. So we get this conversation a lot around um, what I call uh, this idea of um, investing. We want students to invest. And so it's kind of tantamount to the, the engagement piece. And so the piece that I want people to really think about is the notion of competence precedes confidence. So rather than trying to get students to just be engaged, let's take reading. If they're not reading on grade level, no amount of cheerleading or pep talking or growth mindset is going to make me know how the long vowels work. If I have shallow word wealth, meaning my vocabulary is shallow, I can't be a good writer because I don't have a lot of words. If all the only word I have to describe food being prepared is cook, then every time I want to express a thought around that, I'm going to just keep using the same word versus flambe or broil or fry. Those communicate something different, mm-hmm. right? So the degree to which we really can help understand what are the levels of competence that we have to help students get to so they can then be excited about taking the lead of their own learning, right? So. That is, I think, a key piece that hence the personal trainer. What does the personal trainer do to get the client to think, yeah, I actually want to push myself a little, right? Yeah, this hurts a little bit, but that feels good. Or I see progress. I, last week I couldn't do it. Our brains actually have a thing called the progress principle. So the more not in a, you know, assessment kind of punitive evaluative way, but the more we can kind of see that we're growing, we have a tendency to hang in there longer. So that's one thing. How do you make that a fun motivator for students, not something to ding them with? So that's one thing. The thing I struggle with in helping teachers is they want it to be automatic. And this work takes time meaning you are going to have a level of conscious incompetence. You know, you're going to be bad at it before you get good at it. This is the same with writing, right? I tell students, first draft is always just the first pancake, <laughs> right? And I use that theory of the first pancake because nobody's upset that the first pancake was made. It's just feedback, right? The cook says, oh, it's too thick. It's gooey and beige on one side, burnt and crusty on the other. 
let me adjust the griddle. Let me adjust the temperature there. Let me thin out the batter. All the while, others are waiting with their plates. You know, the dog, the baby, the garbage is going to get that first pancake, and then all the good stuff's coming. Well, Annie Lamott calls it the crappy first draft. She uses the S word, yeah. right? <laughs> Everybody should read that essay um, because it's the same thing. When we can help students reduce their stress and their, and their self-evaluation, the first draft is just, what am I thinking about this? Mm -hmm. what, what shape does it want to take? What's the best way to persuade my reader? Yeah. Too often, we're not teaching writing as a multi-step process. Mm -hmm. So we have kids have all their writing hats on, right? The thinker hat, the persuader hat, the editor hat, the proofreader hat, all on the same time. Mm -hmm. And the teacher is not coaching the student to be conscious of what hat you need to have on. And what does it take to take, mean to take off one hat and put on the other? You cannot do it simultaneously. I've been writing a long time, mm -hmm. right? And I know that when I write my first draft, I have to go let it set. Yep. I cannot now immediately turn around and edit it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's got to be there just away for a while, right? For a way, for a while. And it could be an hour. I may not have a lot of time, but I might learn my process. I might learn the long form, right? When I'm writing a book, I can come back to the same section. I'm working on my second book, so I'm knee deep, <laughs> knee deep in this, right? And the next day, I'll have better words, and I'm like, ooh, that's a better, right? So if I know I give myself the space to keep making it better, if I have to edit, then at least 90 minutes. If I can do the editing the next day, so I actually have a schedule. Here's my thinker day schedule, where I'm actually just writing. Here's my editor day schedule. Fridays, I don't try to do any writing to produce. I just edit and mm -hmm. I tinker and I, right? So there's a process and every student needs to learn his or her process. The teacher has to be part of helping the student do that. And sometimes it's being in conversation. I see writing classrooms that have no conference time. How is that true? You're not teaching writing if you're not conferencing because your role is personal trainer. Students can't get better if they can't see the mistakes in their own writing. So you can scaffold your classroom, right? It doesn't have to be all on you. It could actually be where you're doing peer editing, right? I, when I taught writing, I had students do five drafts of a paper. I know, <laughs> honestly. <laughs> but the first draft was for just for them, right? And they could bring it to conference. Then they're going to work on the second draft. They can share that with their, in their peer editing group because they had a home group of four and they were part of four, right? And there was a process and they can swap papers. So they can get that feedback and then now they're going to go and write again. Now we're on draft number three, right? And now I'm going to read draft number three using reader response. I'm not grading it, but I'm going to now, I'm having a conversation with you. I'm writing in the margins. We're talking back and forth. Now you get to go do it again, right? The final prop, then the fourth, I'm looking at your mechanics. Mm -hmm. I'm looking at your transitions. I'm looking at those six traits of writing. Mm -hmm. I'm giving it back to you. Now you're going to bring all those things together. So the fifth draft is you're going to get graded on that. Yeah. Now that's a lot. Not every teacher can do that, right? But there are ways that we streamlined it. There are ways that we made that possible. Sometimes I put more of the burden on them. 
but the, and, and sometimes it was sampling. I'd rotate students. So, you know, maybe you got all five, but everybody started to understand, I need to pay attention to this. Right. right. So I started to actually check, do, have you internalized what that means to be looking for those traits? Right. And my guess is you probably didn't do like brainstorming on Monday all the way to final draft Friday. This was a very recursive process that ebbed and flowed in many, many different ways. I remember that five paragraph essay and we need to put that thing in its grave. Right, right. Because what I see students doing, and I saw this for with my community college students too, they would bring the pain of not being able to express themselves. They wanted to say so much more, but they were not given the tools to expand those five paragraphs. And it became a crutch for the teacher. And then there were students, honestly, they could not write more than five sentences. And then all I have to do is have five sentences be a paragraph. And then I have to have five so-called paragraphs. And that's an essay. So there are a lot of adults along the road that should look and say, that's not going to be adequate if we're talking about college ready. Mm-hmm. Because college is going to ask you off the bat to start writing 10 pages. And there are students that get to college and have never written a 10 page paper. Mm-hmm. I saw them in the writing center panicked and that was in the late eighties. I still see teachers who are talking about five paragraph essays. There are books out about, we need to stop that five paragraph, but it won't die. Well, and then it's hard to have that conversation about, well, I'm giving them the five paragraph structure as compared to we're helping them really understand language and looking at sentence templates or looking at what a mentor text has done and trying to emulate because someone could say, oh, well, that's formulaic. And that, well, it's a very different perspective, right? We're not yeah. just plugging and playing. We're trying to, to emulate and model and learn from those different. That's right. We could give them a wireframe. And I do mm-hmm. believe that's what the, that's what the um, five-paragraph essay started out to be, a wireframe. But we took it as the thing. Yeah, And so we just need to rediscover what does it mean to be teachers of writing? What does professional learning look like? This is why I really have such an affinity for the National Writing Project and its various chapters around the country, because one of the tenets is writing teachers write. What's your own writing look like? Because there's nothing more clarifying than to be in the emotional you know, cycle of your own writing, then you have such compassion for students that it's not a technical thing. It's an adaptive challenge to keep your emotions in check, but also leverage them as rhetoric. What's the emotion I actually want to ignite in another? How do I do that? How do I use words to manipulate in a good way for good someone else's emotions? To me, this is where writing gets super exciting. Mm-hmm. Right. And we see students with spoken word doing some of that. We can see in hip hop lyrics. This is why I like Dr. Tatum's work around reclaiming our textual lineage, because even in those oral traditions, we were using language. Listen to the way kids use language today. It is like, oh, my gosh, it is so nimble. 
And so, and it goes back to the roots of a word and, mm, and it's like, we then tell them, you don't know anything about language. No, they know everything about it. They just don't know that they know. So I call this the Mr. Migagi. I'm, I'm sure I'm not saying that. <laughs> the, the Karate Kid. Oh, yeah. Mr. Yes. Miyagi. There yeah. he is. And he did the, um, you know, that original Karate Kid. Uh, Daniel comes and says, hey, I want to learn how to, I want to learn karate. He says, oh, great. I'm going to first go wax my car and wax it like this, right? Mm -hmm. And he like comes back kind of perturbed. I want to learn karate. He says, well, you now go paint my fence and paint it like this, right? Little did Daniel know that he was internalizing the core moves. And then when that moment came and Mr. Miyagi threw up a hand, Daniel, and he said, wax on. Daniel knew that he had muscle memory. He had internalized that. We're not doing that for our students. Right. You already know something. That way you're using words with that spoken word over there, the way you're writing those beats and those lyrics. How do we bring those in? This is not everything has to be hip hop, but leverage the schema that kids are bringing. That's part of what culturally responsive is. It doesn't always have to be race-based. It can be what the popular culture is, but it means you have to know something about those intersectionalities. Mm. Well, knowing and understanding your students and what they bring, you know, your rhythm, repetition, rhyme, those are things that good writers need to know how to do. And you're just using it in a slightly different context. Yeah, so take but, what you know and let's, let's use it. Absolutely. But I want to press right there because this is not yeah. just about rhythm and rhyme. This is about words I know. This is about word wealth. Because there's a way in which white educators hear that and say, oh, I just have to make everything rhythmic. Mm, thank you. Yeah. Versus kids have knowledge, schema, a word bank that you're not tapping into. Mm. Yeah, and it's not just, oh, what's their slang? This is part of culturally responsive teaching, right? Because the, what, the place we go to is, oh, it's just those, those kids. Mm -hmm. It's all about rhythm. Yeah. Right? Well, I appreciate that you've said word wealth now a few times. And I think rather than consistently calling it a vocabulary gap, we look at it with word wealth and we understand what students bring to the classroom and what they're able to Absolutely. employ in, in those ways. And we don't give them enough opportunity to share that. So we keep talking about, oh, tap the assets of students. And when I press teachers, what are those assets? They can't name them. Right. Because there's a, the deficit ideology is those kids come in not knowing. Those kids come in broken. Those kids come in unengaged. And we've got to kind of conjole them, con, you know, just kind of trick them into being engaged. When the reality is they are learning machines. Their yeah. brains are learned. That's the brain's prime directive. Yeah. And we just have to be able to understand what that schema is that they currently have. Most teachers aren't getting to know students. So they have what I call cognitive insight. I get a peek inside mm -hmm. your head and I understand your schema and everybody's knowledge tree is a little different. Mm -hmm. But there are similarities. Again, we just don't want to promote the idea that culturally responsive practice is just about rhythm and rhyming words. It's about knowing stuff that kids already know. And it's the teacher's job to get it out so that that becomes a usable asset. 
And that's the teacher's job. And if you know teaching, you know how to do that. Unfortunately, we have confused instruction with covering content. Mm -hmm. I would agree with you there. That, yeah. that is, again, a structural problem. And then it happens in those moment-to-moment -moment interactions in classes. So. Well, I appreciate you helping me think through that. And especially now I have that new idea for me of word wealth and, and looking at that as a, as a way to talk about writing instruction. And you hinted at this just a few moments ago, but maybe as we close, you might be able to share just a few more insights about the role that writing plays in your own life. And um, certainly the National Writing Project has been a big part of my professional identity. Uh, I direct our writing project here at Central Michigan. And um, yeah, maybe you could just share yeah. with us a few more ideas about um, who you are as a writer, what writing does for you personally and professionally. Yeah. And you mentioned you have another book uh, on the way. So maybe if you Absolutely. could give us some insights on that too. Well, you know, like I said uh, at, at the top of our conversation, I fell in love with words a long time ago, and it only got deeper and deeper and deeper. And writing has always had a um, place uh, in my life as a thinker. What do you think about that? As a journaler, how do I improve myself, right? So part of improving oneself is knowing oneself better. So journaling has always been a part of that. It's something I've passed on to both of my children who are now adult you know, starting out living their own lives. They are readers and writers and thinkers. And so I always have understood writing to be thinking on paper. And so um, professionally, that's always been a part of what I've done. When I started understanding that the way that I was approaching instruction was different, I took it upon myself to start to write a series of white papers. You know, I, I have this... Um, theory uh, of assign yourself, right? I don't need someone to tell me to write. Most people don't write in their lives. I'm a letter writer. I like to write things by hand. I have, I love nice pens that flow. And, you know, so I have a whole, there's a whole culture for me around writing. Um, and I think for me, again, it keeps me grounded in that way. Um, then there's the whole professional that interspecies versus with the, with the personal. So I consider myself a writer. I did not think I was a good fiction writer. It's why I started writing nonfiction. My book, Culturally Responsive Teaching in the Brain, started as a white paper called The Equity Pedagogy that I just kind of Jerry Maguire-like started sharing with folks. <laughs> and then folks in, in Oakland Unified School District started passing it around and started sparking conversation. And eventually, it had always been the way that I had coached and supported teachers. Somebody said, pulled my coattails and said, you need to write this down and share it with a lot of other people. And, and that's what I did. Um, and so again, writing has always been a way to support education, particularly educational equity, instructional equity, and knowing that the keys to that equity for students are around literacy, right? Reading is the epicenter of literacy because if students don't know how to read, they cannot take that new content in and they will fall behind. We know reading also grows brain power. So I'm really, you know, hawkish on people understanding that, but I think writing is really neglected. So I would love to see more of that. For myself, 
Uh, in the next phase of my life, I want to do, um, you know, essay form is something I'm really attracted to in short story. So mm -hmm. I started, right, because my uh, master's was in uh, secondary English education with a concentration in writing. And at NYU, I, my, my uh, undergraduate was um, uh, English literature with a focus on writing, creative writing at the time. So I want to get back to that. I'm super excited. My daughter and I were just talking about that this morning. So I'm looking to actually start to write more personal essays and would love to publish a book of essays in the next decade. That's on my vision board. Um, and professionally just continuing to share this notion of instructional equity. So that my upcoming book baby, that's what I call it, a book baby. <laughs> I'm in the process of, you know, growing and, and writing and birthing. And it is so instructive, right? The first, it, writing a book is slow and it's painful in some ways. And who do you want to be book? And, you know, I spent two, almost three months writing and you throw all of that out <laughs> because it's like, oh, it's not what I thought that was going to be. And that's exactly the way it's supposed to be. So uh, I'm in the midst of that, really trying to communicate this idea of instructional equity. A lot of what we talked about will be in that book. Um, again, reading, writing as the epicenter of that uh, work, in addition to how do you help build students' brain power, um, you know, in terms of whatever subject you are in? And I think every teacher, no matter what subject, is a writing and reading teacher. You may not think it's happening in math, but it should be happening in math because it is all about thinking and pushing our understanding deeper. So I think those are the things that I want people to understand. It's not just the mechanics of writing. It's what writing does for our brain. And when we have our brains free to process information, we're on the road to liberation. So mm -hmm. literacy for liberation comes through deep reading, where the student is understanding the text and can respond, but also deep writing, where my voice, my opinion can be expressed cogently mm -hmm. and persuasively. It's amazing. Seems as a... Uh... Perhaps it's about your brain as much as it is about your heart and thinking about what you can do both academically as well as making a, a bigger mark on the world with your writing. Absolutely. Well, it's, I, I believe it's my mission. And I believe everybody has a mission and their task in life is to live it out. And to do, we, it takes twists and turns and we have to get good at it. And I feel like that has been my gift and the gift of writing is the way in which I share the mission around equity. Absolutely. Well, that is amazing. Thank you for sharing that gift with us. Thank you for the work that you do with and for educators, with and for students. I've really appreciated our time today, Zaretta. Thank you. Me too. Thank you. You're welcome. Writing Matters with Dr. Troy Hicks is a writable podcast. Discover more episodes and subscribe on your favorite streaming platforms or check out filmed episodes on YouTube. And if you want to learn how to grow great writers, check out writable.com. <laughs>